This is a very special episode because it marks the 60th episode and exactly one year since I started this podcast. And so in this episode, we're going back, collecting some of the best, brilliant, amazing moments throughout discussions that I've had with incredible people, artists, activists, healers, leaders, psychologists, psychiatrists, so many people with their own lived experiences who have so much wisdom to share. So today, part one is going to really focus on ways that people have redefined their mental health experiences for themselves, redefined suffering or things get that get labeled as depression or anxiety or even psychosis and hearing voices and spiritual experiences and the whole wide range of human emotion. You get to hear about the ways that they have really framed and understood these experiences for themselves to hopefully understand that there is no right way, there is no right framework or correct approach. And then in the second half of this episode, we're going to hear from folks about what really helps, what is really supportive, both within traditional systems and outside. So I hope that you get to take little tidbits from perhaps some of the episodes or conversations that you haven't heard yet or are less familiar with and take any ideas or inspirations on what feels right for you. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. We live in a world and a society with a very, very narrow definition of mental health, and finding our own frameworks and contexts and understanding of what may have caused or contributed can be incredibly powerful. First up, we have Noah Gokul on redefining anxiety and depression for themselves as fundamental needs not being met within our societal context. It was time um, for me to start like thinking about, you know, how to care for myself in a different way than how I had been doing. Being exposed to the way uh, that Sasha talks about dangerous gifts. And I really started resonating with that and being like, actually, I don't identify with uh, being diagnosed with uh, a depressive disorder. Like, I feel like I have sensitivities to the world. And yeah, I I really started becoming more aware of my anxiety and um, also feel like that's a, you know, big gift of mine, because it's like, I feel when I need to kind of care for the the fear or like the anticipation and and also the 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 way that trauma is being stored in my body and how that shows up in anxiety when i was having this breakdown and then um understanding that that my job was contributing to it and that all of these different contexts of my life were also contributing to the the breakdown I really like started to realize how important it was to like acknowledge all factors. 
capitalism is one of the biggest reasons why I experience the anxiety I do because I'm like constantly having to worry about being able to survive. And a huge revelation of mine was also around needs and, and this idea that like we have needs and I didn't think about my own needs for the longest because I, of my own kind of like childhood trauma, I would say of like kind of suppressing my needs. But I think I realized that like, I feel like my depression is like a manifestation of not getting my needs met or also of my anxiety over, 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 um, boarding my, my circuits, just like having so much anxiety that I just kind of shut down almost. And I don't want to do anything. And it like, just kind of gets, becomes a dormant state for myself. Um, and I just go inwards. Our body takes a long time to catch up to the way our mind is. Like, I feel like for the longest, I've been so hard on my self because I'm like, why am I still having these like issues? Like I've, I have such a high expectation for myself, but I feel like my body is like still in a, a state of um, anxious anxiety and and like fear from from some of the stuff that I've been through. Intense emotions can be understood as a sensitivity to the world around us, and instead of considering it a pathology or something that's wrong with us, what if we instead really took care of our sensitive bodies and nervous systems? Here's what Asia Suler has to say. And yeah, so it was confusing to me as a child. Like I, I didn't really know how to I- identify. Like I knew that I was sensitive, but to me that felt like that was a fault that I had. And I knew that I was emotional and I read that as a problem that I, I wasn't, you know, normal, quote unquote. <laughs> and so it wasn't really until I discovered this term highly sensitive person as an adult that it all really started to makes sense. And, and I realized that this wasn't some sort of character shortcoming within me. This is a facet of the way that my nervous system works. (laughs) My nervous system is literally just more attuned to and perceptive of sensory input. So, you know, sounds, lights, emotional tone that I am very open to and have like a high field for perceiving these sensory inputs. And so when I understood that, it just, it really helped me make sense of a lot of my childhood experiences and the way in which I reacted to things, which sometimes seemed like it was too much or sometimes seemed like it was not enough. And to me, the term highly sensitive person has really, it's buffeted me and it's held me in that way, especially today, you know, to the current day when I still have moments of being like, why can't I handle this right now? Or, you know, why is this too much for me? Why am I having a meltdown? For me, often it manifests in my body as, you know, pain and illness and, and just like debility basically. And so, you know, I still have moments of coming up against this and being like, why am I struggling in this scenario? And I look around and I don't see other people struggling in the same way with this. And I have to remind myself, like I am an HSP, I'm a highly sensitive person. And what that just means is that I have this really wonderful, incredible sensitive nervous system. And I, it's something that I have been in therapy personally myself for a long time. And it's been incredibly helpful for me in my life. Something my therapist has said about this specific kind of 
nervous system trait that I love. And she says, it's, it's like owning a Stradivarius. It's like amazing things can happen with this instrument you know, of your body, of your nervous system. And yet you have to take really good care out of it because it can go out of tune, you know, very easily. It requires upkeep. And that helps me in those moments where I can start to get down on myself again of being like, I'm a Stradivarius, <laughs> you know, like, and I think this is true for all highly sensitive people, all people who have sensitive nervous systems that it's like, you are capable of truly incredible things. And it does mean that you are going to require a bit more caretaking and a bit more sensitivity in your own upkeep. Adding on to this, here's a clip from a solo episode titled Sensitivity is a Gift on how the sensitivity can get scapegoated and pathologized, especially within family systems. When it comes to emotional sensitivity, often I see that there are folks within the family structure who get scapegoated or designated as the feeler of the family. They get labeled dramatic or sensitive, or in some cases get defined as crazy or mentally ill because of the reactivity. When I used to work with families in particular, people who had children who were coming in and out of the inpatient unit, and when I was working with the family system, I would see this quite a bit, that there was so much happening underneath the surface in the family structure and in the world around them that the most attuned, aware, and sensitive one in the family was the only one really drawing attention to or expressing what were actually pretty deep ancestral wounds, traumas that had been swept under the rug, or the things that people were not saying or were not feeling. Next is Elmina Bell, redefining and recontextualizing ADHD and bipolar within Indigenous and holistic psychology. There are words that exist in Indigenous languages that don't exist in Western languages, and there are words that are in Western languages that don't exist in Indigenous languages because our conception, our conception of reality is different. These terms, ADHD, bipolar, autism, I haven't found them. I haven't found those definitions, those definitions anywhere in indigenous psychologies, cosmologies, or medicine. I have found people who have the symptoms or the signs associated with those in the traditions, like, okay, this person is having an elevated mood and then a down mood. I've seen certain basic descriptions such as that, but in terms of how that is related to, it's not through the lens of a pathologizing model. It's through the holistic indigenous model, which is looking at the root causes of an issue and the systemic causes of an issue. Something that I share with people is that I, I was diagnosed with ADHD in 2017, right? Then I, I didn't want to take the medicine. I was like, let me try like some different sound healing meditation techniques and see if I can get my concentration back. And I did. The meditation practices had restored me to my previous state, but my previous state was never like, you know, a hyper productive thing. It was productive, but it was not like a hyper, but it was manageable. What made the symptoms and signs associated with ADHD debilitating was over time stresses and traumas of life and just like stresses and certain things. What I had to produce 
becomes bigger as you get older. And that's when it became a problem. That's when my concentration got so ridiculous. Now, fast forward 2020, 2021, when I start having these bipolar experiences, it was not scary. I was having mania, but it was not scary because it was not forced. It was not induced by some other outside force that's not in alignment with my body. And till today, I tell people, bipolar is not uh, an issue for me. What makes bipolar uh, difficult for me is if there's a traumatic experience going on, then it becomes a problem because you're feeling very deeply something that is traumatic, right? But on a day-to-day basis, that way of being, like having those um, high emotional states or just being very goal-directed on something, those things aren't actually bad. I did not have problems with the bipolar until my second semester of grad school where I had to deal with the stresses of colonial system. Similarly, Tabisa Timkulu, who is a healer from Swaziland, South Africa, describes his experience of being raised within a cultural context that had a lot of space for what in the West gets labeled as crazy. I would say people, they will call it crazy. You know, I will Mm -hmm. go back there again because that's the common word they use. When you scream like, whoa, they say you are crazy. But luckily in my homestead where I grew up, that was something that we knew. And it was safe for me to just let it happen. Even though inside I know that, okay, you know what? I think I'm going crazy, but I didn't have control of it. I tried to fight for a very, very long time up until I trained. So when I when they come out, you know, they will, I will make these noises, scream, roar, and then they will not take like take drums and beat because uh, they respected that I was young. I needed to be at a certain age. Now I'm in school. The only thing they will do, they will just come here, Neil, tell us your name, who you are. And then the ancestors will tell the name and then they will say, Okay, now make sure that you protect this kid. Maybe last year, you know, after staying here and realizing, knowing and having a good understanding uh, of this uh, side here in America and back home. And and what I've learned is that here, the way they deal with uh, someone who's, I will say, crazy, they always run to the point where you stop it. They don't give the space for you to let that crazy thing speak, you know, to make a relationship with that craziness and to make sure that you do all the things to make sure to prove to the craziness that you do believe that something happened before you were born. You don't know everything. So if something happened before you were born, it will want to speak again. There is a reason that you were born and the way that it's showing up this time, it's for it's through your body, you going crazy so that other people can listen to you. It's for you to what seek for attention so that people can what can see you and come into you. It will come and provide. But now there is nothing like that. The Western medicine, once once they do that, we run away. Actually, I don't run away. They run away and they take out their cameras and take photos of you. They call an ambulance. They take you to the psych ward. They restrain you. They don't ask you any questions. They don't. They will ask you after they give what 
they created the person that they want you to be. Silence, sit, and behave. That's the term they use. They will say behave. In my culture, there is no behaving because behaving is what is letting your body move like a tree. Listen where the wind hits you and follow it. But with the guidance of other people, you will never break. You will never hit. But there is nothing like that here. They give you injections without even making the relationship. I will say they don't like to make the relationship. They don't like to do the long division. You know, that's what I would say. Because he, in healing work, there's nothing like a short term. There's nothing like I do it today, it changes tomorrow. Even though a lot of healers have tried it, it does work, but it has consequences. When it comes to healing people, understanding how the brain works, no one knows where your thought comes from, but they like to cut the, where the thought is going. If the thought is telling you to move in this way, they must ask, why are you feeling this way? Give you, give the space for you to feel that way. A lot of sickness, you know, is because people are, what, are trying to behave in a way that they will look normal. But that's one thing that the body wasn't created for, to behave, to be controlled, to, to feel like you are in a prison. That's the, even if your brain can tell, you can tell yourself that you are fine, but the body, it speaks over time. In searching for generative ways of understanding her experiences, Katrina Michelle has redefined her altered state as a spiritual emergence or a spiritual experience. How I was once upon a time, a 20-something, walking through New York City, coming off of the subway, actually, uh, when I was suddenly thrust into a whole new way of being. I suddenly found myself completely open-hearted, interconnected with everyone around me on the busy city street. I found myself swept up in complete love, empathy, and just cosmic understanding of our interconnected nature from the, from the people around me to um, all of life, right? Universes. It was just this profound, really ineffable moment of understanding. Um, and it was so intense and so fleeting that, you know, moments later, when I kind of came back to waking consciousness, didn't really go anywhere. I imagine from the outside, I just kind of kept walking, but it was this powerful moment that just contained everything for me. And it was so big that I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have language for it. It's taken me this long to find that language I just gave you to point to it. And I just didn't know what to make of it, you know? So my tendency was to go toward the framework that I had as a psychology major at the time, which was, oh, maybe this is the beginning of a first break psychotic episode um, because I didn't know how else to frame it. And I sort of just told myself that and tucked it away and let it, let it stay there for a very long time until I finally started to realize there were people that I could speak to about this who would understand that outside of just that very super narrow, limited mental health worldview. And that's where I first found language for my experience. And I used um, the language that uh, Dr. Stanislav Graf gave us, which was to call my particular experience a unitive experience, that experience of oneness um, with the world around you. 
And um, so I use his his language as basically a, a guidepost, but there are so many other words that we use to research and study, but he gave us the lens of spiritual emergence and spiritual emergency to talk about these states of consciousness. Um, and so some of the people that I've worked with have had such experiences as Kundalini awakenings, which we can simply say is um, in general an opening of an energetic system that we don't fully understand in the material realm, but it's an opening of energy. And sometimes it feels like uh, a bolt of lightning going up your spine and opening up your energy body. It can be very disruptive. It can create memories of trauma that have been unhealed to come to the surface. I've worked with people, many people, in fact, who've had near-death experiences where they may have come close to physical death or, or not. Um, and sometimes people who did actually physically die and they were resuscitated who had these experiences of the afterlife and um, looking at some of the similarities in those areas where people often experience, you know, a tunnel, a white light, they're greeted by ancestors and loved ones. They also have this cosmic understanding of the universe or of a choice point where they can choose to go back to the world that they were living or they can choose to move forward. So those are just a couple of examples. And then there are, are things that we talk about kind of in a very common way, which I don't think we give enough credence to, such as synchronicity, deja vu, experiences that people are almost dismissive about um, dream dream states. You know, all of these, I think, are, are these altered states that can be really used to help us have a lens into the bigger reality. Daryl Rocco redefines her experiences with addiction as a trauma response and a way that she was trying to cope with her own sensitivities and moving from a repression of her emotions to a willingness to be vulnerable. It was just a mess. And it, to me, it wasn't a full surrender. It was more of a, oh, I'm going to manipulate how I'm going to not do this thing. So one day, as, as was suggested in this program that I was involved in, you're told to work with somebody who had something that you wanted. And well, I, I had a bad I had an attitude and I have this protective mechanism of, I don't need anything that you have. I don't want anything that you have. Are you kidding? I was such a hardcore pain in the ass badass. Legitimately. <laughs> I was 27 years old. It was such a pain in the ass. And I was, I don't need a sponsor. I don't want to be a member of anything. I'm not paying any dues or fees. I'm not any of this. And God, it was so funny. Like little did I know. So I asked her if she would talk with me and she said, yes. And she was from Texas and it was exactly what I needed. This woman actually saved my life. I'm for sure of this. She saved my, my tush. And she asked if I was willing to go to any lengths to have, you know, to stay sober and have a different life. And at that point I was, and that really meant like becoming vulnerable and then doing all the work behind that, which, you know, each of the steps that leads you to the next and to the next. And what came from that was like, it was a master of my own mess. I had no names for my feelings. I had only that trauma and the splintered feelings of being a victim in my life. And she said, D honey, if you want to stay sober, she's from Texas. That's what that one was. <laughs> if you want to stay sober, you need to get willing to get real. <laughs> like, mm, okay. And recognizing that I was the master of my own plan that I had designed in each and every situation where there was a problem. I was the common denominator. And I say problem, but, and she said, and victims don't get to stay sober. 
So you need to decide if you're going to be a victim or if you're going to live your life. Oh, so that's what I mean about my story. I think I said earlier where the kind of story that I weave now is so different than what I was weaving back then. But, you know, my life is completely different. So if I were to say how I got to spirituality or why I was even drinking in the first place is that I couldn't manage my sensitivities. I, I didn't have a way to protect myself. My family didn't have the dynamics or the systems or the setups in order to support what I was seeing, hearing, feeling, and experiencing. And then I had these traumatic experiences happen. And what happened from that, you know, slowly but surely, I had to be a little bit willing to uncover, discover, discard, and move forward and um, learn to love and to be loved. Next up is Randall Gates, who describes the physiological roots of mental health concerns and the ways in which actually chronic pain and illness, systemic inflammation, and autoimmunity can all be roots mental health concerns. But needless to say, that's why childhood trauma is so important. So now we have individuals walking around with, for all intents and purposes, dominant fear centers. And then that can have hormonal consequences, predisposing us to depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome. There's some discussion in literature they wanted to rename it irritable brain syndrome because the vast majority of IBS patients have depression or anxiety. And if you talk to a gastroenterologist, they'll say, yeah, most of my IBS patients need help there. Autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. So it's almost like you name a chronic disorder and there probably is some tie to that. And that's why, because now we're in fight flight much more so than we should be. That basal tone of fight flight is higher than it should be. I just think we, we just keep doing the same thing and we have to do something different. Yeah. And what was the world's number one cause of disability? depression, not lower back pain. It's not orthopedic injuries. It's depression. So I'm a firm believer in what you're talking about. I'm a firm believer that this is where we need to start. And certainly we can co-manage with other mental health professionals, but I think this is where everyone, this is where, let's say probability wise, I think a lot of people could be helped if we started functionally, dietarily, supplement wise in the appropriate way. That's been my experience. Can I say that every functional practitioner out there has the solution to that? I can't say that. I think you need to find someone, if you're looking into this, who really focuses on the mental health side and functional. And there are more, even psychiatrists who are going that direction now. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's a great way to go at first. Because as one psychiatrist put it to me, they said, what you're doing is foundational work. And you can't have a house without a foundation, or at least not a stable one. And so we need that foundational work. And then what else, what other dominoes fall, so to speak, when you do that? And one of my biggest passions too, kind of as I mentioned at the onset of this, is what does this mean to your kids? So someone has a genetic tendency for bipolar or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, because we know these have immunological correlates. The genetics for schizophrenia largely are through major histocompatibility alleles, i.e. immune genes. So this whole genetic association with schizophrenia is largely autoimmune. So can we start working with these families and saying, well, we know this is what the end stage can look like. So why don't we do things immunologically to help this family? And lastly, here's a clip from a recent episode on depression as a messenger, where I describe even more broadly than depression, how extreme emotions or things that get considered madness in general 
can actually be pathways, important clues that can guide us towards what's not working in our lives and in society. Experiences of depression can be in some way generative or in some way a pathway to transformation. And I've actually seen this quite a bit when I worked in the mental health system, often with children and teens and families who were going through really intense experiences, trauma, crises, folks who were going in and out of the inpatient unit. I've often found that depression is very often a signal that there is something in our lives, in our world, in our community, in our society that needs to change, that needs to shift, that's not working for us. Before I go there, I want to share with you a quote by Thomas More, who's a psychologist who wrote the book Care of the Soul. And in this book, he really talks about some of the inherent value of depression. And again, when we talk about the value of something, it's not to say that we wouldn't prefer if that experience was not there. It's not to invalidate the very real suffering of it. But that is to say that there is value in the experience itself in terms of how it transforms us. And so he says, as a psychologist, I don't try to eradicate problems. I try not to imagine my role to be that of exterminator. Rather, I try to give what is problematical back to the person in a way that shows its necessity, even its value. When people observe the ways in which the soul is manifesting itself, they are enriched rather than impoverished. They receive back what is theirs, the very thing that they have assumed to be so horrible that it should be cut out and tossed away. When you regard the soul with an open mind, you begin to find the messages that lie within the illness, the corrections that can be found in remorse and other uncomfortable feelings, and the necessary changes requested by depression and anxiety." End quote. That idea has never left me, the idea of necessary changes requested. For me, that has been so true to my experience of depression in particular, but I would argue madness as a whole, anything that gets labeled as abnormal, intense, or extreme emotions. At the core of it, for me, there has been necessary changes requested. Those necessary changes may be things that I can change myself in my life, but they may be changes that are far more communal and societal as well. If we are willing to, to some small degree, sit with the feeling, the sensation of it, or ask, what is this experience asking of me or requiring of me? Can I let what needs to die, die within me? Can I allow myself to mourn? Can I be with the numbness, the meaninglessness? Because maybe my old ways of trying to make meaning or ways of storying my life and who I am or who I'm becoming don't work anymore. Or maybe the context, communities, institutions, society that I live within is not working, is not nourishing me. Maybe there are ways that I can understand myself in context that starts to meet more of my needs. And I do believe on a fundamental level that increasing our tolerance for the whole spectrum of emotion is really helpful, that we glean a lot of wisdom from our bodies when we can witness our pain and not run or hide or quell it. 
Now that we've gotten a taste of different frameworks and ways of recontextualizing our experiences, we're going to hear from folks about what truly has helped them. What is truly supportive when it comes to navigating emotional pain and suffering and the whole wide range of things that impact our mental health? First up, Ruby Warrington on refusing to pathologize ourselves and eliminating shame. Shame is so exhausting and so prohibitive to our full creative expression. The longer we feel ashamed for who we are and the choices that we make as a result of the people that we are, the less power we will have to wield in the world. The less shame we feel about that, the more emboldened we will be to put into the world the creations, the ideas, the thoughts, the ideologies that reflect who we are and what we want and what we need. And I truly believe that the more of us that feel emboldened to behave in that way and direct our creativity in that way, we can truly create a whole new world. We truly can. It sounds kind of, I don't know, grandiose to put it like that actually, but I think you can sort of feel it in your body, right? So long as I feel ashamed of myself, I'm not going to express myself fully. Once that shame is lifted, I am free to create whatever I want, you know, to ask and demand what I need. And that's, yeah, it's dangerous to the status quo. And this is why, you know, the subtitle for the book is the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood. Because I think there is a real strong sense of revolution in us just claiming our right to create and to live lives that we know are right for us. Because shame actually, whether it's consciously projected at us or whether it kind of is just something that develops out of an unconscious understanding of ourselves as being other or deviant in some way or defective in some way. Yeah, it just kind of like sucks up all of our creative juice, I think. And it's a powerful tool of oppression, ultimately. The next clip is from my discussion with Jagger Waters on childhood sexual abuse. And she brings in this really wonderfully stubborn attitude, this refusal to believe that it's something that we cannot overcome. And this refusal to engage in this endless loop of healing. This never felt unrecoverable. It never felt like the awful thing that everyone made it seem. And yeah, I I think that I can credit maybe not directly those therapists, but like myself, the healthy adult relationships that I did have, all the mentors, the fact that I like, I grew up in an environment where I I could constantly engage with my creativity and writing. These words like healing and recovery, I think that that confuses people like from knowing what that goal actually is. Because if your goal is just like, I need to heal, I need to get better, I need to heal, I need to get better, I need to recover, I need to recover. That isn't specific enough. Yeah. And you ultimately, like the times when I like felt like I wasn't okay or I felt like everything was fucked for me, it's because I believed, it's because I believed that it was fucked. I believed that it was never going to get better. And the moment that I decided, you know what, actually not only is it going to get better, but like I'm going to have like really great sex and I'm going to have, I'm going to be like really self-aware then it became that way. Like it's, it is choose your own adventure. It's, it's, it is what you decide that it is. And that's the responsibility that we were talking about earlier. Look, I think with using something like comedy or just, yeah, refusing to treat it like cancer, 
it's the ultimate like genre flip. Like it's the ultimate 180 reversal to, to take something so horrible and to bring a little bit of levity and light to it. Like, I think that's, that is, that's magic. That's what, like, that's why we're here. That's why that's like the transformative qualities of being a creative person. Similarly, Daryl Rocco talks about the isolation that is so common amongst trauma survivors and the real lesson in being how to ask for help. Wherever I go, there I am. I'm the one that needs to find a way out of this darkness or address whatever I haven't been addressing and actually ask for help because probably from the very early time, most probably mostly after my dad died, I felt like I was a survivor. And as a survivor, you don't ask for help. I got this, couldn't rely on anyone or anything. You know, there was nothing super predictable. That was a hard pill to swallow that I was the one that needed to look at myself and let go of things. Asking for help was the challenge. I've been walking a path of asking for help and reliance on, on something a little more divine other than my own self-will because well, self-will is great, but you know, if self-will could get me where I wanted to be, then we would all be living in a different paradigm, I think. Similarly, Issa Ibrahim credits friendship and community as one of the biggest healing factors in his life. You never know how important friendship is and connections and relationships are until you lose everything. And you never know how important it is, how much enough is, and how much things don't really matter when you lose it all. Starting from scratch again, you can pick and choose what you need, what you don't need, as opposed to hoarding all the things you grew up with, because that's all you know. Once you lose that, you're free. But I did discover after losing my family and being a pariah, that relationships were important and I would not get through unless I reestablished or made new friends and connections, which I think Ida was wonderful for. You and Sasha, and and there were some people who I just made friends. And it was important to just, when I made these friends, I always let them know when they asked, what are you in here for? You seem okay. They always say, well, this is what happened. I'd always tell them the story. I was always upfront. It was healing for me, and it was important for them to know. So if they wanted to cut and say, oh, that's too much for me, Gotta go. Or if they decide to stay, I know I've got a real friend. Speaking of authenticity and relationships, next up we have Caitlin Loon, who talks about the intricacies, the vulnerability of co-regulating with another person and being really deeply honest about our own projections and experiences as we're trying to build deep friendships. A person that we're intimately relating with upsets us. It's peering behind our reaction, behind our story, behind everything that that means to us and what we think it means about them and really trying to hone in on what is the most detailed, true thing that you're feeling in that moment in in reaction to, to that person saying that thing. I mean, we can be as empathetic, you know, and perceptive and, you know, all the things as we want to say, and often our stories are wrong. Like they just are. I think I'm quite an intuitive, perceptive person and I'm making up 
fake ass stories all the time about what people are thinking about me all the time. Because if you want to talk about empathy for a second or like being an empath, I think the real thing that we can get closest to perceiving is a person's physiological response. I think people, if they're paying attention and a person gets tight in front of them, if a person gets tight in front of me and I'm paying attention, my body gets tight also. And I feel that and I go, whoa, okay, they're tight. I'm tight. Uh." And then, so I think that's legit. But then I have this whole story that's based off of all my own bullshit about how annoying I am and all the things that I say that could have been dumb and everything that they say that they're sensitive about. And I create a whole story about why they got tight. And then when I check in, they're like, oh, actually, I just like saw the time and I'm running late to something. So I need to wrap this up. And I feel kind of guilty that I'm cutting our phone call short, but like I have to go. And it's like, wow, if you already have a story that you're annoying and you don't check in when this thing happens, like now you just have more evidence that you're annoying and you're getting further away from sharing your reality with this person. And so giving yourself the intimate, and let's be real, it's very vulnerable to say it and just giving yourself a chance to like sync up realities with that person and get on the same page. I find that, you know, just like you said, like so intimate, like it feels really intimate. Next, Noah Gokul takes us into the power of community care and also the value in really slowing down. I need community I need a lot of like affirmation, self-affirmation and validation. And and I need real like community care. You know, I need like people that are able to to support me when I'm when I'm feeling down and and just also I need to like not overload myself for the longest. I've really tried to just do the most. Like in New York, moving to New York did not help that. Like mm-hmm. such a um capitalist grind culture and I thought that like you know I just had to like follow this flow of like doing so much but like less is really more and I feel like in the the recent years I like realized how much I needed to slow down in order to heal and just follow the intuition of like what my body needs in the moment right now I think I'm just trying to think about like how my body is feeling on a daily basis. And I do um, meditations and I journal and I move a lot slower these days. (laughs) And I just try to not like rush into like any sort of commitment without like feeling out what I really want. And I, I just like talk with my chosen family and I make art. And I um, just do less work (laughs) (laughs) if I can. And Asia Suler brings us back around to deeply tending to our bodies and our nervous systems. (laughs) Chronic illness and chronic pain have been my greatest teachers. And what that really boils down to is my body is my greatest teacher really in this lifetime. And I realized for a long time I was very antagonistic with my own body you know, not wanting my nervous system to act the way that it acted or being frustrated with my body's you know, inability to just be well or, you know, do what I see other bodies doing. Like, why can't my body do that? You know, and really the, the reframe of seeing my body as my 
own spirit guide as the sacred animal companion who will let me know anytime I am not honoring my truth, basically, which includes the truth of, of my own body and my own systems and what they need in order to be nourished and flourish. Bridging the elements of community care and tending to our nervous systems. Here's a clip from an episode on holotropic breathwork where I describe some of the main lessons and benefits of this specific practice on healing mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Knowing this potent, powerful aspect of altered states, and while I didn't want to relive anything like that again, I wanted to be able to safely engage with altered states in a way that would be really healing and helpful for my nervous system in a group of people with skilled practitioners and breathwork hit all of those marks for me. I started going to group breathwork sessions in New York City when I lived there and really was so moved by what it was like to be in a group of people all not only healing together, but being incredibly expressive together. To me, that was the most novel part and still is the most novel part of holotropic breathwork is that we get to laugh, scream, cry, make sounds, move our bodies in ways that we typically don't have any other spaces in our society to do so. I've talked about this before, but we are so emotionally constipated as a society. We are so emotionally repressed. There are almost zero spaces besides a very controlled dialogue between you and a therapist that are typical for any kind of emotional release. We don't have any places to do so. And I'm not saying that we should all be walking down the street expressing every emotion that moves through our bodies, but We need places to access our emotions where it is safe to do so and where we get to understand that we're not alone in those emotions, in our sadness, in our anger, in our pain, in any of those things. Breathwork has taught me many things, but the main thing that it's taught me is that the body has its own innate wisdom. Anytime that I've gotten stuck in the mind, stuck in what I thought the process needed to be like or look like, things that I thought I needed to learn or move through or experience. My body has always led me to far deeper, more powerful places than my mind ever could have. And through breathwork, I've learned to not just trust the emotions that are coming up to be released because emotions have to be felt in order to be healed. They have to be felt in order to be integrated and they are felt through the body. But breathwork has also taught me that my body knows exactly what it needs in order to heal. And I'm a big believer that all of us All of our bodies have a unique wisdom that if we're able to just get out of our own way, our bodies know what it needs. Our bodies know how to release trauma, how to release stress, distress, past experiences, 
Here's Almina Bell again on the value of spiritual practice. I learned about how even for me when I was stressed, doing spiritual activities helped me to calm down. Be, be that meditation with music or spiritual baths or aromatherapies and stuff like that, spending time in nature. Um, those things were helping me. But it did take a while for some of those things to help me, particularly the spending time in nature part. But after like two years of putting myself out there, I actually started to feel the spirit in the plants and hear like the flowers talk to me and stuff. In terms of like how this was bridged into psychiatry, just doing research in my classes about Black psychology elders who had already done that work, who had already began researching spirituality. But I was taught, obviously, through the DSM that's uh, involved psychiatry that spirit is pathologized and that just being or just the way we typically behave as white people is pathologized. And so I believe that spirituality gives black people the freedom to be themselves more fully because we are very spiritual people. Spiritual practice can also open us up to different language and ways of being. Here's Brittany Quagan on how communicating with her spirit guides brought her through some of the darkest times in life. My voices, which I now refer to as spirit guides, were the, were the thing that saved my life because I was contemplating suicide. Just to give some background, I, I had a lot of childhood trauma. My mom also had quite a bit of trauma and she was struggling with drugs and, health and alcohol at the time. So I was kind of on my own. I was in this place of just loneliness. There was no one home ever. It was always dark. My mom was always locked in a room, like blowing Coke or whatever the hell she was doing in there. And I was just in my room uh, going through teen things, which are hard to go through on your own as it is, but having uh, these more, just more deeply emotional experiences. and. Yeah, contemplating suicide. My guides kept me from doing that by sort of encouraging me that, you know, this is just for now and there's things that were that are going to be happening in your future to help people and you're going to write books and all this shit and I'm like, "What?" Like I I still to this day working with people with depression and having experienced depression myself, really I'm like our narrative is not rooted in all of this empowerment. So, I To me, that wouldn't have come from myself. In a similar vein, here's how Asia Suler describes feeling the power of that universal, unconditional love and some of the other spiritual practices that work for her. Something I've written about before is this idea that the message you most need will never stop trying to be delivered. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's how much you're loved, pretty much. That like the earth and and your guides and the universe, whatever words work for you, that it's like they love you so much that they're not just going to let you not, you know, like flower in the way that you are really meant to. But sometimes like that message, it's got to come like, it's like the first book of Harry Potter when that Hogwarts letter has to come like 1 million (laughs) times or something, you know, it's kind of like that. It's like, it's just like being like stuffed down the chimney and like coming through underneath the door. And so I try to have a sense of humor about it, but yeah, for, for me, time in nature is really essential. 
And very specifically time where I'm not doing anything. There's not a goal. I'm not hiking to a pinnacle. I'm not trying to harvest something. I just go normally to a place where I can be quiet and like lay down. And then for me, writing is huge. Not the kind of writing where I'm going to then share it with the world, but just, you know, stream of consciousness. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? It's sort of like how I come back into my home frequency is how I put it. It's just doing a little bit of writing. So that is very, very helpful for me because often I don't even really, I don't even realize necessarily what I'm feeling until I slow down my thought process enough. And for me, writing is how I slow it down. I think some people speaking works like that for them. And I know certainly times where I haven't had my journal with me, like I'll just speak out loud, especially trees and waterways, beings that I know, like really have the capacity to receive whatever it is that I am needing to express. I talk in the book about talking to the moon at some point and just like that powerful experience of feeling held by the moon. And like, I could express anything and just have it be seen and observed like in this benevolent light. So yeah, those are two practices for me, literally just spending quiet time on the earth and writing anything (laughs) In short, that actually slows me down and gets me back into my body. Um, Dance is another huge one for me. Dance has been a really big part of my own personal journey. And I notice that when I'm not dancing, I I feel it. Here's Veronica Agard talking about some of her spiritual practices of moving with the seasons and also how she stays in connection to her ancestors through ancestral practices. I enjoy moving with the seasons overall. And like that as a healing modality in general and is a reminder that we're not separate from nature, um, especially within the Ifa tradition now. I'm like, yeah, we're really not separate from nature. Aside from writing, writing has always been my means of getting my thoughts out and like holding space for myself. For me personally, as an individual, 2016, I was practicing in Capoeira. Um, specifically Capoeira Hedjanao, which um, the lineage of that is through the late Mr. Bimba, who was from Salvador Bahia in Brazil. Also, shout out to Brazil for electing Lua and getting rid of Bonasaro. Right. Clap. Um. <laughs> and here's Christopher Rhodes talking about the ways in which spiritual practice historically has been done in community. Because we've come so far away from the natural flow of energy in our cultures and societies today, in my opinion, When I look at energy and energy work and psychic abilities, you know, my head goes to the cultures where they're doing the tea leaf readings, where, you know, it's some people that are sitting around, maybe they're elders and maybe they're a community. And every Sunday they, you know, they go around and they're doing some readings or it's someone with a palm and they're, you know, telling you about some lines and some things there, or as simple as, My mother used to make these charts of moon cycles for women, you know, and there's just, there's so many ways and it's so natural. It's so natural. It's so, it used to be just a part of everyday life. You would have an amazing dream where you go to these extraordinary places and you'd wake up and you tell your friends and you would tell them about all these things that you did. And then they'll share where they went too, you know, that it was just a part of everyday life. And it was included in our experiences and it wasn't something that was so separate. One quite common thing that people mentioned in terms of what has been healing for them 
is psychedelics, which can often be a way that people do profound, immense healing, shift their relationship to themselves and the world, and further or even begin their spiritual journey. So here's Almina Bell again, talking about her relationship to plant medicine. Now, what helps me is the sound healing, teas, drinking warm teas. I also take uh, psilocybin um, mushrooms, but not the psychedelic kind. Psychedelics is actually not the best for me. The mushroom that I take is so small in dosage that it does not give you a trip. It just helps you to like listen to your brain a bit more. And I feel like I'm in a partnership with anything that I'm taking, whether it's just drinking morning tea, like an herbal tea or fruit tea, even the, the, the fruits that I'm eating, the psilocybin pill that I'm taking, I'm always talking to the spirits, going back to nature earlier because this thing comes from nature. So I'm always like in partnership or in community with what I'm taking um, and I can feel its uh, energy. So that's what I do now. Bringing this discussion into a clinical context, here's Katrina Michelle on the power of psychedelics, altered states, and how they help us release trauma from our bodies. You know, this is the thing people are and have been experimenting with psychedelic medicines for a long time. And um, I can't speak too much to the history of them, because I'm not an anthropologist who studies them, but I mean, they've been with us a long time. And it's just that in this modern Western world, uh, the models that we've chose to move with in the mainstream have not embraced that. And now that that's changing, I think it does open up a potential to understand and embrace altered states and what they can offer us. Certainly, they offer us insights. They certainly offer us um, an ability to have more mental flexibility with how we see the world, how we understand ourselves, our problems to kind of escape that linear narrative that can often really confine us and give us, give us understanding of all the potentials that are out there, not just for healing ourselves, but for healing our planet, for healing each other. Um, so yeah, I think you make a good point that uh, we've been we've been sort of capitalizing on this yoga meditation new age industry which is here inducing these states of consciousness and there is healing potential available and so what about the people that do have these more spontaneous episodes just because they were not uh, intentionally induced doesn't mean that they are any less valuable and and again it's it's so individualized it's hard to talk about this as a blanket statement but I think that's where we need to really get curious and start thinking about, well, what can I learn from a spontaneous experience I had or a profound dream that everyone else writes off, but to me, it felt more real than real. Um, Because I think, you know, there's a lot of medicine in that and in really just making more meaning and giving more space to uh, immerse ourselves in exploring these areas. I think psychedelic assisted therapy will be the new norm in the next Mm. decade. You know, I think that um, MAPS has done a phenomenal job in getting the research to the point where we will likely see MDMA as a substance um, scheduled for regular um, therapeutic usage in the next year or so. And I think with that, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And when you think about the potential there, um, the way that MDMA works in a therapeutic setting is that it gives somebody the opportunity to, first of all, feel safe. In, in the setting with a trusted person who is sober, uh, supporting them, and who's able to hold the emotions that come up with them. So the reason it's been researched for PTSD is that it supports 
one's defense system in coming down enough so that the trauma memories can come to the surface and they can be worked with and ideally eradicated. And the reason why um, traditional therapy doesn't do that in the same way is simply because our defense systems are so damn good, right? They're really good at protecting us, but often in that protection is a level of um, restriction, right? It's keeping us from accessing what it really is that we need to work on. And um, psychedelics, and in this case, MDMA, is really something that just allows the defense system to come down so that we can safely access the traumatic memories, work with them, and, you know, clean things out and give us, give us a fresh start at accessing the heart space, accessing self-love, self-compassion, and moving into, um, I, think, I think, a therapeutic space that is very different than uh, somebody in traditional therapy will experience, at least in a few short sessions. David Levine brings some more nuance into this particular discussion by helping us understand that the decision to take any drug, either outside or within a clinical context, is a really crucial decision and one in which there is no universal correct answer for anyone. You know, I had had some, you know, experiences with various drugs when I was very young. You know, I started smoking weed when I was like 14 and eventually moved on to like opiates and whatnot when I was starting college and parts kind of like kill the pain of just like living a life that there was kind of like no reason not to just be kind of numbing myself out all the time and uh, eventually kind of stumbled across psychedelic drugs. And, you know, I took ayahuasca because I knew it was a drug that I could make at home and I had heard about it. I had no like intent for the uh, type of like outcome that it ended up having on me. But, you know, from the first time I drank ayahuasca, I was no longer, uh, for lack of a better term, addicted to opioids. <laughs> um, wow. You know, and, and, you know, then I, you know, eventually started experimenting with other sorts of psychedelics, which in turn really kind of got me off of the psychiatric medicines that were not really helping me. Um, and, you know, really trying to set kind of direction for my life and really deciding that what I wanted to be doing was fighting the war on drugs. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Psychedelic psychotherapy is awesome. I've been, you know, very into maps since I heard about them in 2006. But like one thing I wanted to say after honestly listening to that and a lot of things that go on with like the the way legalization is happening, the way people think Mm -hmm. about it, when we talk about psychedelics and psychotherapy, they're two great, they're, they're like chocolate and peanut butter, right? They're two great tastes that taste great together, but there are people who are allergic to each. Mm. Um, and it would be folly to do this in a way that the psychotherapists have complete dominion over psychedelic medicines. Yes, Um, yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and there is a lot of benefit to uncontrolled use, you know, that the control itself can cause all sorts of issues for all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. And, you know, the reason this is all even going on now is because you had decades of, you know, a marketplace for the psychedelics, which is why they were still like available of people who are like just going out to parties and concerts and like using them in a way that people are terming recreational and getting a lot of benefit from that and learning a lot about their lives from that. And, you know, uh, uh, coming back and being happier people from that. And like, you know, and then, Lots of people who've been getting all sorts of benefits from psychotherapy without psychedelic drugs for like a really long time. And people who experience psychedelic psychotherapy and don't really like what their guides are doing to them. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's it's just, uh, yeah, they're two great tastes. They taste great together. They've both been really great in my life. But that doesn't mean you can't have one without the other in either direction. 
If people do decide to engage in therapy or any kind of clinical setting when it comes to mental health, what is it that can help those environments actually be supportive? Here's Noelle Hunter talking about what she's learned can be helpful in a therapeutic relationship. The first time that I was in a session and I got mad at the therapist and the therapist turned around and said, I'm sorry. Mm. That blew my mind that the person didn't tell me it was my fault, didn't get defensive, didn't say, well, I was just being irrational, whatever. I said, this thing upset me. And they said, you're right. I'm sorry. That's a thing people can do. (laughs) I think just more moments like that of like treating me like a human being, really genuinely trying to understand how what I was experiencing made sense not pathologizing me, uh, even when things were super, just super bizarre and all over the place and, and didn't make any sense and was totally not even anywhere remotely close to reality. It was like, okay, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Let's actually try to understand this. Not just freaking out and saying, here's a drug, shut up. Here's Jagger Waters on the value of selecting a therapist who's right for you and your specific needs. I guess if there's one thing I was going to say to my, to my younger self or to like other people who have like ongoing childhood sexual abuse, like do not see a regular therapist. Do not just go see someone because they're a therapist. You need to find a trauma informed kink positive sex therapist. Yeah. Because when I did that, I saw this one. I only got to see her twice. It's it's so expensive, which is kind of funny in its own way. Like I don't have, I don't have $50 problems. I don't have $50 an hour problems. I have $200 an hour problems. (laughs) And that's how it is. But so I couldn't, I couldn't afford to see her more than twice, but she changed my life. And I, I go back to like, that was actually worth my time in a way that the other ones were kind of actively harmful. And it was like the other therapists who weren't, trauma-informed were like, they were like adding time to the sentence that I already had. I'm like, now I got to do like two more years. I got to do, (laughs) and now I got six more months on the end of my sentence to like get over what you just said to me. Next, we have Brittany Quagan on a specific therapeutic modality called internal family systems and how working with the different parts of the self can be really healing. I'm a huge fan of internal family systems. Mm-hmm. and looking at the parts of me that developed at different stages throughout my life and and why those parts developed and how they're helping me and how I can work with them as opposed to fighting with them um just to feel more grounded and connected to myself and to the world it it's been it's been a hell of a freaking journey to to really explore who I am and how all of these parts of me got here. And I love doing it through that lens of like, all right, who is this part showing up and how did you get here? And really like tracing those things back helps me understand that on a much deeper level without judging the shit out of myself for the parts that I have that like to show up at certain times where I'm feeling scared or triggered in whatever way. And, and exploring where I learned. Yeah. Where did I learn these beliefs? Where did I learn these feelings? Where did I learn 
that this is how I have to show up in the world. Next, Jessie Roth talks about claiming the identity of trauma survivor and how she granted herself permission by sharing her story with people who could really hold it. Well, one thing that comes to mind is one of the earliest times that I felt like I might be able to claim this came through the experience of telling my story to other people, which I started to do more and more over time. And it's funny, we've possibly many of us had this experience where you share something with someone else and it doesn't like because you hadn't said it out loud or your relationship or vantage point was just you to that story like it didn't seem quote that bad so it was me sharing some things that had happened to me to other people and then being like oh my god like are you okay that sounds really hard even if it was something that happened years ago and that like kind of was an eye-opening experience. And the way I would put it is like a both and. I think that there's value and sometimes it is like maybe the, the necessary first step to hear that validated by somebody else, but you can't stop there. Like I know for me, I, I understood more over time that I needed to get to a place where I wasn't just validating it because someone else thought it sounded bad. I needed to like you know, understand that implicitly, but, but I will name because it really was part of my experience that that helped get me there. Like having that experience multiple times. Yeah. I'm just really grateful for all of the people in my life. And you're one of them for sure. Who, who like listened to my story for one thing, that's just incredibly powerful. Just listen, no judgment. And also maybe offered with uh, permission, like not advice, but like, Hey, can I, can I offer you something? that sounds really hard, you know, or that definitely sounds difficult. No one also trying to put, put any kind of label on me. You know, I have an experience or set of experiences in my family that are, that are hard to talk about. And I just, I think I want to offer that as like a really concrete tool, like fiction writing or poetry and music, like just kind of like all of the different avenues that there are for expression to people who might struggle. Like I have with like more straightforward, here's my story. Like, here's the, the, all the things that happened to me. And for any number of reasons, it could be re-traumatizing to tell it, even if you want to. And also like, I don't know, maybe privacy reasons. And so I just remember feeling this like really deep sense of um, power that I, I managed to find by reconnecting to fiction writing, which is something that I did a lot as a kid, but in the sense of trying to find kind of liberation and be able to like express myself, like to kind of make private stuff public in a way that I needed. And also it like offered me some sense of like anonymity. And as a final theme to round out this section on what is supportive and helpful, here's Noelle Hunter on letting ourselves be messy and fall apart in the right supportive environments. I had no choice but to be in it, uh, for sure. I think I was lucky that I didn't end up in the hospital. I also was lucky that the five different drugs I was put on made me very, very sick. Uh, And so I threw them all away. (laughs) Uh, So in that sense, it did kind of force me to be in it probably longer than if any of those two things had gone differently. But then beyond that, it was years and years and years of very, very intense therapy of going in it and in it and it being really messy and weird and scary and the therapist as well and constant mini crises here and there of being broken down and built back up again and broken down again and I do think that that's something that I bring into the work that I do now too of challenging people and 
therapy's messy. If it, I always tell people, if you want to talk about a second piece of advice that I would tell my trainees that come in is if, if therapy is nice, you're not doing therapy. Mm -hmm. I do think there is something about pushing up against that line over and over and over again that finally allows us to move through to a very different place. Mm -hmm. Rather than people who have just learned to contain it, I feel like they're always just they're always just coping. You know, they're always just one step away from the next potential breakdown. Or, or that's just, that's a scary way to live. I I feel for many of us, it's this feeling of you you know when you're walking around trying to just hold it all together, and that's exhausting. And so there's also it's not just I need to go through this. It's I'm tired and fuck it. I'm letting it. I'm just letting it all out. <laughs> It's relieving, right? It's like oh, I'm done. Let it, yep. let it just let it all come out. It's right. So there's definitely a piece of to that. I think for most people, I think also there's a factor of once I got through the crisis process and was to a place where I could just put it all away and pretend this never happened. Not doing that, I think, was because I felt safe. I had a good relationship with the therapist and I think I felt safe to be able to open it up in safe ways and kind of go in and out of it if you will but I don't I don't think I would have been able to do that alone yeah I think it really does always come back to relationship yeah do we have a safe space to be fully messy fully ourselves and finally coming full circle we're back around to Noah Gokul who describes the power of just being with ourselves in our experiences without trying to fix or change or stuff anything down. Just being in it. Like, I think a lot of times anxiety is just like so severe when we just suppress it and we don't acknowledge it. Like lately in the last few years, I've just gotten a lot better at being like, I am really anxious right now or I'm lonely, or I'm feeling a lot of fear, or, you know, even though it's, like, really challenging to actually acknowledge it, it's, like, just, just doing that, like, that act is, like, somehow, like, better. I'm so grateful to you for being here. I also have something for you to take with you. It's a workbook and meditation bundle called Reclaiming All Parts of You. I created it as someone who really resonates with moving through a lot of shame, insecurity, and self-doubt to really tackle these issues so that you can stop hiding and feel free to express more of you. The link to that is in the description below. It's free. You can just sign up with your email. And if you loved this episode or this podcast, please let me know. I would love it if you left me a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what you liked and how it supported you. And I love hearing from you in general. So if you have a question for me or want me to talk about a specific topic on this podcast, send me an email and let me know. Until next time.